With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. Once again, you are listening to the VMware Communities Roundtable Podcast. This is podcast number 500. Today is, so it is today, March... 12, 2020, going down in history as number 500. With me today, I have my regular co-host, co-host Ismail. Ismail, how's it going? Going great, going great. Right? Special Congratulations day. on the 500th podcast. 500, but you know, really wasn't me. It was uh, John Troyer, and today we are going to have special guest John Troyer join us on the call. Wow. So we're super excited about that because uh, John hasn't been back on the podcast since like 279. So he did over half of all the ones and got it started. So we're going to talk to John Troyer. Also on the show, we're going to talk to Andre Workington. Today's a special show as well because we're going to finally talk about ARM, uh, ARM and ESXi on ARM and a fling that's going to be on Raspberry Pi 4, the 4 gigabyte model. So also, that's a super exciting topic today. I can't wait to take everybody through what VMware is doing around in ARM. That's going to be the show topic today. And we're going to officially talk about when we might see an official uh, code base that we can actually run on a Raspberry Pi 4. So we're going to get to that. Before we do that, though, Ismail, what's the color of the bay today? The color of the bay is a beautiful turquoise, a little bit of gray. We got some, uh, well, actually you guys can't see it, but uh, we have cloudless skies. Birds are chirping. It's beautiful here in Palo Alto today, guys. It is. It is. This is the Indian summer for sure. We're going to, you know, it's just been beautiful weather. Nope. It's like mid 60s, 65. So for the you, you guys out there, Corey Romero in, in Utah and uh, Tony Foster out there in Kansas City somewhere, uh, you know, enjoy that snow. I know it's been cold and snow. So we'll pop over to, uh, to Corey Romero. Corey, uh, how's it going? I know the VExpert apps, so you guys are voting. I know the weather is still cold up there. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's happening with VExpert apps? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, hey thanks, Eric. Hey, so uh, we are currently still in the process of doing the applications. We're almost done. Uh, we expect to have the award announcements uh, within the next two weeks. Um, as far as Utah goes, you know, it snowed this morning pretty good, and then the sky is cleared up, and it's nice and sunny, and warm-ish. You know, the difference in the, the weather, the cold weather, 60 here, even 30 here versus 30 in California, right? California has to tend to tend to have a little bit of wind. When the temperature drops down here, we don't have that wind. So 30 is actually pretty comfortable. You know, it sounds a little weird saying that, but it is. Um, yes, the yeah, brain has the to expert, What's that? That's what your brain has to tell you. Hey, I don't mind that it's snowing <laughs> and cold. It's really not that bad. I got that. Right. I got that. <laughs> yeah, so as far right. as the expert program goes, uh, let me go over just a little bit more there, uh, if you don't mind. Um, so we're sure. going to wrap up applications and awards for the next two weeks, and then a week afterwards, we're going to kick off um, some sub-programs. So we're going to kick off voting all at the same time. Sorry, voting not, uh, applications all at the same time for VExpert Pro, NSX, vSAN, Cloud Management, Security, HCX, and finally, end-user computing. So we're going to have all of those sub-programs. 
Um, so I'm really excited about that. I will send out mail to all of the V experts, and once those applications open up, and we'll get going on those as soon as, quick, as, soon as possible. Yeah, fantastic. And um, John Troyer is uh, going to be on the call too, and it's our 500th, but also it's great to see the VExpert program uh, grow to the point where we can have these sub-programs because uh, John will remind us that um, the VExpert program, you know, John and I built that together. John, you know, launched it. And it really was about, you know, being able to treat people special and to give them access to briefings and to really help them be really great bloggers. And John was always on the notion of keeping it small. And I was, as a marketing director, always trying to make it big to keep compete against Microsoft and their MVP program. So we, we right. tussled back and forth between big and small. And I think the sub-programs are a perfect blend of that, which is the sub-programs are under, you know, 200 uh, people, it's like under 100 people for a sub-program. You get care and feeding, hand-holding, branded items, all the good stuff of a small program that John always liked to, to do. And yet we still have it under the V-Expert umbrella, which is a big program. So we're going to have like how many of those programs? Seven programs now? And are there yeah, we've got you know, seven sub-programs. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. BU leads on all of them, so, which is full support, which is great. That's great. So applications are ending up on the sub-program. So great news there. And if you've got your VExpert app in, you know you should be hearing from us shortly. So awesome there. Thanks a lot, Corey. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, moving on to our first special guest. John Troyer is on in the house, on the call. John, how's it going? Hey, now. Hey, Eric. Hey, everybody. Uh, things are going great. Really glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for coming back. I think it has been since the original when you left VMware around 280 podcasts or so that uh, you had done them. Uh, and I got to say that it's crazy how these things keep ticking off week after week. And I got to thank you for developing a model with the original podcast that it really is a great way to do podcasts, which you invented the idea of just doing a live stream before live stream actually existed, right? You found this thing called TalkShoe and, uh, and you, you, you just started doing them every Wednesday. It wasn't about the quality. It was just about the connection with the people on a regular scheduled event. I mean, is that kind of the way you kind of looked at that? Why don't you take us through how you ended up starting this thing to begin with? Sure, sure. I mean, it was the early days of, uh, I mean, what is early, right? Was it 1999? No, it was, you know, towards the 2008, nine, right? And right. We, we wanted to get to know, we, always, we already had moderators on the, on the forums and things like that. We had user groups going on. But it's not like we saw each other that often. And we wanted to start some sort of a communication and, you know, get to know people. And, and so the first couple actually were pre-recorded. And I took some of the moderators and we just kind of had a conversation. My original idea was, oh, let's do like Washington Week in Review. And like, I'll give everybody will like be a, be a reporter and they'll cover one story for the week. Well, that lasted about zero shows. And uh, <laughs> it quickly yeah. turned into just kind of a conversation and with guests. And the live thing after, it, the other thing, both with the experts and I think everything we did was start simple and try a lot of things and iterate, right? We, Eric, you and I over the years, we did all, we, we launched, all, we tried things, we, we sure. started, we had events, we started parties, we did, we did different blogs and, and things. And, right. you know, yep. some of them worked, some of them didn't. And, and you don't remember the ones that, that we didn't go forward with because they were trials and the things that seemed to resonate, we did. And so very quickly with this talk show stuff and with the, with the chat, 
<laughs> it's kind of funny we're still on the same platform. Um, you know, it, it, it took off. And once we were live, right, and it became a, um, like a campfire, right, where everybody could join. And sure, it might, the, the, the audience was a few thousand people maybe, but, but then the, and the live audience was, was maybe a few dozen-ish, but like it was, a, it was a gathering place and it was a rhythm and people would stop their day for this. So, and it, people still do. So that, it was pretty cool. Yeah, it is good. And you know what? I still, I still get reminded of the failures because at being at VMware for 10 or 12 or 13 years now, I get new people that come in and go, oh, we want to try this. And I'm like, yeah, we tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> like, I got to get reminded of all the ones we did. We did. But you're right. We, did, we do lots of stuff and we fail at a lot of stuff. But the ones that uh, hang in there are the ones that end up being successful because they are successful. But I would say that you hit on a, a great thing and when you handed it off to me when you left VMware you you had said like look it's about it's about that regular schedule right that you know every Wednesday we don't record it we don't spend a lot of time massaging and in editing and you know gee it's just live but then by the end of the this session you know at one o'clock when we do the barbecue report at the end we're done. We don't go back and touch it. We don't have to spend an hour. And that's way, the way you can actually keep having them week after week, right, is that keep it simple. Yeah. I've been involved in many podcasts since, since now, since this one. And uh, most of them are edited, and I've got to say the work is, is another 10x. Now, you guys do video and all sorts of stuff like that, and that's a lot more work as well. We, we, we tried to get that going 10 years ago. But I think for people in the audience, right, there is, I mean, people in the chat are like, fail fast. Yeah, you know, even in your own work, right, you try, you try something to see if it works first in the lab or whatever. You don't just roll it out in the production. And then just the immediacy, right? You know that talking to your colleagues in person or, or live as much things, email or blog posts or whatever, that, it, that is an asynchronous method of communication. It's nice to get everybody together, and it seems to work. Yeah, and I'll, I'll echo you, Eric. Uh, we couldn't have done it. You can't do it every week with, with scheduling guests and guests who cancel and all sorts of stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, anytime you can do something that just has one take is, <laughs> is pretty good. Yeah, it, it is good. Uh, uh, Ismail had a question. Oh, no, it's that comment. You know, that was um, you, you kind of talking about the live versus the pre-recorded. Um, and that was one of the things that kind of caught me, um, you know, when I first started here at VMware, that when I'm listening to your, to your, your podcast, it's a very real conversation, right? You're not going back and having to worry about, oh, edits and, you know, scripts and things like that. You know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Put it out natural there. Natural feel, yeah, right? It's, it's just people natural. talking. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think John did that. Um, r r you know, a few more minutes on this topic before we get to Raspberry Pis and, and ARM with our, with our real guest here. John, uh, when did you hit on maybe having a co-host? Because I have Ismail here. Uh, at some point, did you just decide, I need somebody else? What was the idea of co-hosts? And do you remember any of the famous ones? Uh, or who you boy. like? You know, uh, I did it myself for quite a while, and it turned. And then, I, and then I, you know, eventually one passed to travel or something, right? And and I, I I recruited some internal folks, and I'm I'm blanking on the guy's name. And afterwards, he he told me like I almost died because I melted down. I had to lay on the floor afterwards because when you're doing this, if you're a solo host, you have to you have to be Terry Gross, right? You have to listen to the guests, you have to ask good questions, right. listen to their right. answers follow up if needed because often especially technical stuff it's great if you could clarify a little bit or kind of you know get rid of the acronyms or 
or kind of give the high-level summary that the engineer just gave you, the low-level, you've got to think of the next question. You've got to be ready for the next question. And you had chat going on, so you had to, like, make jokes in the chat room. And that actually, you have to split your brain up into a lot of pieces to actually do that. It turns out it's a, it's a kind of a, you get better at it over time. Um, you do you get know, better at it, and you, you start <laughs> to learn to blend it a little bit, because mm-hmm. you're right. A lot of times I catch myself thinking about the next question while the person's answering this question, and I don't even pay attention to the answer, because I'm so focused on the next question in my brain. And it, it takes a yeah. little while to get used to having that split brain thing happen while you're looking at your screen thinking of the next question and listening and being part and being current it takes a minute. And it, it, it is a performance. You, you want to say something interesting, right? With energy. It's not like a, it's not like you're whispering to your, to your, to your lover or you're, you're just having a conversation over coffee and you're both kind of bored violently the day. This is we're on stage and people are listening and hopefully it's interactive. Um, you know, I don't know. We, we used to, we, some of the, some of the guests were scheduled far in advance. Some of the, sometimes it was last minute every week comes around awfully, awfully fast. And so sometimes I would just grab a product manager walking down the hallway and say, hey, can you be on the show today? So, um, and then, uh, you know, I did a lot myself. And then we, we often, I think we pulled in some people from the community as well. You know, there are regulars. I would call on people, frankly. I would, I would call on people without warning. That's kind of was my usual co-host methodology. Yeah, that was it. I remember Alex Mayer and the news. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I think that one, and I still get people asking me, are we going to like, reach out to Alex Mayer and have her come back and say hello? Right? And so there's definitely you made a mark on people, and Alex Mayer made a mark on people. Right? There's that no was a good team. Yeah, that. yeah, with Alex. Yeah, we, and we tried video. We did news for a while. But yeah, yeah we did so do video, other... and that right, the video actually worked out great until somebody stole all our equipment coming back from Europe, if I remember right. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a fun time. Yeah, I really like video. I mean, most of my meetings these days are on Zoom, right? And most of most of what I do. So you got to comb your hair and shave and stuff. Uh, you, it's not phone anymore. I think video is much more accessible these days. And then uh, you know, but the news, Eric and Ishmael, you know, the, there's lots of places to get news. And so the real value add is the connection and the real conversation. I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. It is. And uh, and now we because we have live stream, uh, they also tell me, oh, by the way, while you're looking at your chat and you're thinking of the next question and you're listening to the person that's doing a question, don't forget to look at the camera because you're publishing on YouTube and the YouTubers want to actually look at you and, and look at the camera so you feel like you're actually addressing them as opposed to looking down at the screens, keeping track of everything that's going on, which is nearly impossible. That's right. Good point. I got to show you a look at the camera. Every once in a while. Well, and, yeah, that's the thing. Do we really want to do that? You can't be all, can't be all to everybody. So maybe we'll look at the camera once in a while. Maybe we won't. And with that, uh, what are you going you know, before to, before we let you go, John, or at least you can hang out and be with the podcast, ask questions yeah. if you want. But any interesting, cool things? Because I know you're always on that edge, right? You're always out there doing stuff. You do stuff with uh, the Cube sometimes. Is there anything interesting mm-hmm, in community mm-hmm. that you've seen that you're, like, excited about? Interesting in community. Um, or anything, well, any space you know, you're working in these days. Well, I mean, you, you said I'm on the edge. I mean, I think edge computing is super interesting, whether that's, you know, distributed remote data, data sites or, or, you know, all the way down to IoT. You know, I was at KubeCon this year, so obviously lots of Kubernetes stuff going on. Multi-cloud, cloud rationalization is really super interesting to me right now. Uh, I mean, I, I also dabble in like the no-code things, and and uh, I'm getting more into data science. There's really interesting things going on, not with the, 
like I, and maybe in a previous life, I, I might have called myself a data scientist, but with the infrastructure required, somebody's got to set up, you know, the, all the databases and all the, and all the uh, 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 workflows and care deeply about GPU utilization in the cloud and all this sort of thing. So that infrastructure layer below the data scientist, which I'm not even sure has a name, maybe it's data engineer, I think is fascinating and, and is a, an area that is um, woefully kind of under-organized. Or at least I, if, they, if they're organized together, I haven't found the right conferences or, or blogs or whatever to write about. And, and Eric, I'm also interested in what I'm about to explore more in, in, from the community side is like, what is the role of community and blogging and, and, and in 2020? Right? Do you still start a blog? Do you start a video blog? Do you just do you go to LinkedIn? Do you go to Medium? Do you do you go to something like Dev.2? Is there? I mean, we used to. Do we still have blogs on on the VMTN forums? They worked okay. I think there's probably better ways of doing it. But you know, is a is a is a a blog that you haven't is a personal blog that you haven't written to in 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 five years? Is that an appropriate representation of your persona online? I mean, I think it's really there's some really interesting stuff about IndieWeb and syndication. I think that's the you know what's the what are the next generation of folks? How are they going to make community? How are they going to connect in a community yeah. of practice? You know, and how does that help right. their career? And and what I'm looking at also in 2020 is, you know, as we move into SaaS services instead of on-prem installation, right? People are consuming software as opposed to installing, configuring, and and running the guts of it. Now they're just you know you get online and you consume a SaaS service. It's set up for you. You know, it runs on Amazon somewhere. You don't know. You're just using the software. How, what does community around that mean, right? Is do you need community if you're just clicking on stuff at Amazon? And what does that mean? And what are the what are the value props that community offer when you're not talking about how to make things run and how to set up computers and data centers? Um, what's that upper level function that community can offer to consumers that are actually just using software hosted on a SaaS service somewhere? Yeah, how are you innovate if there's not many nerd knobs? How do you get together and innovate and, and figure stuff out? Yeah, right. Is there a need for is there a need for it? And and yeah, there is. There's always there's always the next challenge. That's technology, right? It's always moving forward. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be called tech, and we shouldn't probably be in Silicon Valley, the most expensive place in the world to possibly live. If you're not going to be out on the edge doing stuff, so yeah, I'm sure there will be more edge stuff. It sounds like we're going to bring John back later on this year, have him find, give us his findings on how communities are, you know. Yeah, we should, now that we're allowed to use his name again. Apparently now that he's here, <laughs> you know, it only took another uh, 300 podcasts to make it okay to have John Troyer back on the show, talk about things. John Troyer, thanks a lot for, for coming in for podcast number 500. Uh, you still have me beat because you went 270-some number, 280-whatever, and, uh, oh, and I've only, I've, we're only at 500, so I'm not even That's I'm just not around even the corner. Blink of an eye, you know. Kids Blink of an eye. be out of college. I got to go look and see. I have all the agendas, and I started at 279. So you you managed to go up to like 280, and uh, so I've still got a few left. You'll catch it. You'll catch them. I'll catch you. But then you also been doing all the Geek Whisper podcasts, so it doesn't like you went away or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and I produce a produce a podcast called Real Job Talk with uh, my wife Kat and and uh, her uh, partner in crime Liz and. I'm actually going to start up a new Zoom one, I think, just of me talking to people. So it's all, you know, you know it, 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 yeah. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I had to go to CES. I want to go to CES. My son worked at Roku and invited me to go to CES. But to get a badge, you actually have to show that you're an evangelist or you're something, right, that you have a public persona. And I actually used the interview you did with me on one of your podcasts, right, where you actually wrote it up and put it online and said who I was. And I screenshotted that and submitted that as my CES authentication. Uh, and, that, and that worked? Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah it did. So oh. I appreciate that. So you have been busy. You, do you still run Tech Reckoning, or do you do others? Is the, is the brand yeah. shifted to now something else? Uh, Tech Reckoning is the company and the brand. I do consulting. I work with a lot of other folks. Ironically, Eric, uh, when I do work in the influencer advocacy space, right, I'm most mm-hmm. of the time giving people advice, make your program bigger, because there's a lot of people who just, you know, they have a small program. They like only working with a few people. And I see the opportunity is to grow it. Um, sure, you have a core of people who are, who are super evangelists, but there's a lot of people who could benefit by the, the special attention and the networking and who will help. You know, there's a mutually beneficial relationship. And then, of course, there's that whole you know, next circle out of, of, of people who are you know, users or, or interested parties. Anyway, so most of the time, Eric, I'm, at, I'm telling people to make their programs bigger. We do some, we, yeah, so I do some work in that, but I'm doing more tech analysis these days too as well. And uh, uh, you know, I try to help marketing people. I try to be the connection between tech and marketing. And it, 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 I try to keep it interesting. That's, that's awesome. It's great. It's great. Always have a great, strong community of people there. All perspectives are welcome. And uh, John, thanks a lot for, for spinning it up and teaching me how to do some of this. And uh, I love you and I hate you all at the same time, right? Because I have to do this every once. <laughs> well, the feeling is mutual. Hey, can I stick around? If, can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, get, let's get into our, our main guest because I think this is the subject that uh, I find between ARM and Kubernetes. Those are the two this year that I find fun. I have to go back to the vSphere stuff too and enjoy that, but let's talk ARM. So our guest has been patiently waiting. Uh, he is, let's see if I can get his title right here, uh, Andre Worgenton. He's the co-founder and tech lead on the... Uh, uh, ESXi ARM project out of the CPBU, which is Cloud Platform Business Unit at VMware. Andre, welcome to the show. Thanks for being patient, and it's uh, super cool to have you on. Uh, why don't you tell us a Thanks little bit about me. how long you've been at VMware? Tell me a little bit about VMware. How long have you been here, and what are you working on uh, today? Well, this is, uh, so I, this, this is my ninth uh, uh, year at uh, VMware. Time does uh, really fly. Uh, so, uh, I'm technically for the ESXi ARM project. Uh, we're having tons of fun, uh, kind of doing the impossible, um, uh, porting this year uh, to 64-bit ARM platforms, uh, which are uh, cutting edge. It's been a, a wild ride seeing this space firm up uh, just from an idea of a standardized ARM platform definition, uh, ARM servers, and ARM cloud, ARM edge. So uh, it's been pretty neat uh, throughout the, the history of this project. Uh, we've had to wear many different hats. So uh, right now we're in the cloud platform business unit. Uh, for those of you uh, who might not know, uh, CPBU is basically the business unit that does vSphere. Uh, prior to that, the project was uh, located in the office of the CTO, which isn't just pure research, but is sort of directional, strategic. And um, now we have PMs, right? Uh, well, when we were in Octo, we did everything, right? So we were... Uh, we're obviously engineers, we are our marketing, or our, our project uh, uh, and product management, so it's pretty crazy. Uh, you, learn, you get to learn uh, many different things and find out you're not very good at them. So. 
All right. Well, that's great. So been, time does fly, and uh, I hate that it flies because we all get older, but yet I still feel like a kid in a candy store. I get these little ARM CPUs, and I, I'm having fun with them. Uh, let's talk about the growth of ARM and the CPU business in general. Uh, what's the trend here? I know all, everybody that listens to this podcast build x86 servers and data centers, most of us. And so you know, the trend, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the ARM trend in general? How did we get from x86 owning everything to ARM showing up now. I think ARM CPUs the most number of CPUs in the whole world. So why don't you give a little bit of history of the, uh, the industry and why VMware thinks this is worth investing in. So let me try to, let me try to generalize and kind of sum it up. Right? So we know that pretty much around, say, 2010, 2012, ARM dominated the mobile ecosystem. And they very much say disrupted the personal computing business uh, uh, market, right? Uh, everybody uh, had to have a phone, and PCs were kind of going down low. Um, now, ARM doesn't by itself make any CPUs. They make um, sort of designs, right? And then somebody else makes the CPUs, makes the chips. And so what ARM initially facilitated is this wild west where you have tons of competition, everybody making their own CPUs, their own system on chips, that when these mobile phones. And so on one end, uh, you know, ARM, you know, there's no such thing as an x86 um, mobile smartphone or anything, right? On the other hand, um, it was not standardized in any meaningful way. I mean, yes, it all ran Android, right? I mean, there were other operating systems before that, but they all kind of went away. It was all Linux, it's all Android, but at the hardware level, it was not really standardized. So the trend in ARM today is being boring. Now, what does that mean? Uh, x86 is boring. Boring is very good. Boring means standardized. Uh, ARM has been traditionally a vertically integrated ecosystem. What this means is that usually the same company that produces the physical chip, they also produce the uh, low-level software uh, called the VSP board support package to enable to run an operating system on it. And then many, many times this company will be tightly working um, with, say, um, a cell phone manufacturer or kind of ODM to design uh, a turnkey solution, right? a whole stack based on this chip and the software. Now, right. PCs and PC servers is a horizontally integrated ecosystem. That means that the company that designed the CPU is not the same company that designs the motherboard, which is not the same company that built the box, which is not the same company that built the system software, which is not the same company that built the application stack, which is not the same company that sells the stuff. So that's horizontally versus vertical. So ARM is going horizontal, and this started with ARM servers. Now, ARM servers are boring because they look and, and act just like x86 servers. To sum up how, it means that a proprietary software vendor like Microsoft or VMware can run, uh, can create a single operating system image or hypervisor uh, OS image that can then run on any one of these machines without you know, having to know basically who made it, what's inside, much of the same degree, uh, you know, all of us were building PCs back in the day. Maybe some of us still do. Remember the little CD-ROM with drivers on them, right? You know, there's a network driver, there's a sound card driver. Well, guess what? Sure. You can still install Windows without that. I mean, you don't have anything, right? But you'll have enough to at least get on, you know, go online and install the drivers. So that's boring. Boring is great. Um, and then, and then, yeah. So, uh, yeah, just. Uh, okay, uh, boring is great. Um, now this trend is starting with servers, but now it's going um, kind of uh, under the smaller uh, devices as well, such as I use an edge compute, I use an infrastructure. 
So, uh, yeah, let me fix my sound and a little better. Uh, nope, that got worse. You were fine earlier. <laughs> yeah, I think Julia was oh. struggling with some sound when she's live streaming. So you can oh. work on it for a second. Yeah, that got oh. worse though. I think this is okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, talk some more. Just uh, yeah. All right. So we'll continue on, and she'll she'll play with you. So that's interesting in that um, you know. ARM has been vertical, x86 has been horizontal, uh, and you're right, all the ARM devices, if you look at it, are all just packaged together, you know, in one unit in a cell phone or in something. Now that we have, you know, IoT starting to happen and the need for, I think ARM brings to the table maybe low power consumption, better power management, um, maybe they're smaller chips, I don't know. I don't know why ARM is used in the smaller footprint other than it doesn't have the giant x86 Intel footprint to run big servers, so maybe it's just a smaller CPU, uses less power, and the licensing terms might be more favorable. Is that, is that kind of how we transition to now? And then how does that play in the edge, and why, why is ARM showing up as these small server packages that are box-mountable on a wall somewhere in, a, in, a, in, a, you know, in an edge location? Right. So I would say that the, the reason why you see ARM flourishing, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a major reason for it, and then there's an enabling factor. So the main, the main reason is that uh, what you see here is uh, finding uh, the best fit between hardware and workload, right? So depending on what you want to do, right, especially if you uh, talk about edge compute, you know, what does edge compute mean? Well, it means these systems are, uh, are running something fairly specialized, so it's not just a general purpose system in a data center somewhere, right? So it's going to run some specific uh, data um, collection, aggregation, analysis. Now, it has to run that in a certain kind of environment. Uh, uh, this environment may be uh, an industrial kind of environment uh, uh, with the limits on power, uh, cooling, uh, space, right? Uh, but not just for edge, let's take a look at cloud, right? Are there limiting factors there as well? Right? You, know, you can buy uh, different size instances from cloud vendors. But of course, if you're de uh, deploying a uh, cloud scale application uh, you know, at scale clearly, uh, you don't want to buy the, the biggest instance you can find uh, it, because you know, it, won't, it won't be used to full capacity, right? It's all, always about making sure your app capacity, that the, the, the hardware you pick, the instance you got for edge, for cloud, it doesn't matter what you're doing you do not want to have excess capacity, right? Now, in the cloud side, it's easy to understand. Well, you're, you're paying with your money uh, up front, right? And at the edge as well, right? Because you need to have cheap devices, you need them to have, uh, to fit within the confines of the environment. Uh, the other ARM thing, really, is that, well, uh, there's much more choice in terms of uh, building customized solutions. So you have many, many more vendors building CPUs, right? Uh, and then ODMs on top of that, creating the actual platforms. Um, also, what I think is fairly important is that, well, I mean, it's true, right? Because ARM initially grew from this kind of embedded mindset. It, people still take to that, well, you know, you know, if I had to go embedded or smaller, I had to go with ARM, right? I don't think it's actually true these days, but if you look at the variance of solutions, I mean, yes, there are some really small ARM-based solutions not solutions that would say work well, uh, you know, that we want to virtualize, uh, but you know, microcontrollers, real-time chips, 
all these chips, they're different from the same kind of application-grade uh, ARM CPUs you would see in servers, phones, or edge compute, or smart mix, or cloud instances, but they're still ARM. So there's much more choice. So if you have to uh, basically get your workload requirements, right, and then whittle down the hardware to the smallest, cheapest, coolest running thing you can find, yeah, that's probably going to be ARM. Now, what about the enabling function I was talking about? Well, enabling function is open source. I don't think uh, uh, what's happening right now with ARM servers or ARM Edge or SmartNix or anything, other stuff, uh, I don't think any of this would be happening if it wasn't for open source. I mean, inherently, uh, what operating system or what software stack would I use or would you use to build an IoT application or a, uh, or a cloud native application? Oh, the Linux, right? So it's Linux. Right. Plus, um, either open source libraries or open source exactly, right? Uh, or maybe you're building on top of this stuff. You know, you look back 20, 20 years ago, right? You couldn't see any other architectures penetrate, um, you know, at the market because first of all, there was no real market. That was the enterprise market. The enter enterprise market was does it run Windows? Uh, does it run Oracle? Uh, no, go away, right? And with ARM, obviously, this is uh, it's very different because uh, you know these, these two kind of new novel uh, ecosystems for building applications. Those run on Linux. Linux runs on ARM. Well, there you go. There you go. And you're right in a sense that like social channels have actually gone out in the social world that I live in. You know, there are specialty social channels for almost everything now. So we've gone from homogeneous to kind of specialized. And I can see that when you're building solutions, you know, Intel was the ultimate horizontal homogeneous platform. But as you get low license cost hardware, you can you, you, you see specializ specialization starting to happen for solutions, whether it's in your Tesla car or in your mobile phone or in various places, you're actually seeing that, that specialization where you can build hardware and software put together in a solution, you know, just as you say, low cost and optimized for a particular problem set. And then but there's I a think word you're of right. caution. There's yeah. a word of caution I want to say, right? So basically, vertical ecosystems work, but to a degree, right? I mean, they, they can work if you're, say, Apple, right? But, but then many, many companies think they're Apple and they're not, right? Um, right. you know, we've seen vertical ecosystems work for ARM with the Raspberry Pi ecosystem, as in the thing that the Raspberry Pi Foundation does. But it doesn't actually work for anybody. I used to work in the mobile phone business, right? And you know, you know, the most commonly asked question about Android phones is, you promised me an update for Android XYZ and you haven't delivered. What's going on, right? So this is one of those things where. Uh, you see this happen, and it's not because a cell phone manufacturer is bad or good. It's because, well, the, the, it's an enormous burden and strain, right, to basically yeah, under, you know, under to move. The work. Yeah, exactly. yeah, you underestimate now, the Visualization is very important, and this is why uh, ARM can shine. But we have to be very careful about, like, where innovation matters, right? Now, ARM is, uh, is becoming more homogenous, but not the, at the expense of not enabling innovation. What they're saying is, let's standardize the basics, like how an operating system boots, right? How does it expose devices, right? Kind of the same thing that, you know, there's no value, right? You've got to standardize it, and in fact, you've got to do it the same way you do in x 36 so, And this has been happening, right? So this is actually one of the reasons why uh, companies like VMware and Microsoft can, uh, can uh, work on operating systems that uh, run on these on-base systems.
Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about ESXi and ARM, uh, and you know, w- w- where are we going with this? I know we we've had we've talked about doing ESXi on ARM. What's the the point of it, and uh, where are we w- in that process? Great. So ESXi uh, and ARM. ESXi uh, targets A-profile ARM chips. So, like I said, these are uh, chips, application-grade chips that go. Uh, well, that generally uh, go into mobile phones, servers, uh, edge compute, th- that kind of thing, right? Now, we're not talking phone, right? But ESXi does not target the M profile microcontrollers and does not target R profile real-time chips. Uh, so we target 64-bit chips that are capable of virtualization. Um, first time we were publicly announced uh, was uh, VMworld 2018. Uh, that was in, in Las Vegas, and uh, we presented uh, VMware's vision for uh, edge compute, if you remember, that was the wind turbine demo. And edge compute is one uh, major uh, area where, where you know, there's potential for ESXi ARM. There, there are no uh, concrete proctization plans just yet, uh, but you know, we're actively working on, you know, in this particular line. Um, another uh, space where you saw ESXi ARM pop up publicly uh, was with the cloud, right? So, uh, for example, VMworld 2019 uh, in, in Barcelona uh, gave a kind of a State of the Union uh, address on ESXi ARM, and I showed that ESXi ARM can run on Amazon's A1 uh, Metal instances. These are, these are servers that AWS build themselves with their own custom CPU. So, yeah, wow, like AWS can build their own ARM, ARM, ARM chips, right? And uh, the context for that is to explore, you know, if our customers want to uh, adopt ARM-based systems uh, uh, in AWS, right? Well, we have something that leverages AWS too, right? That's our VMC on AWS solution. So clearly, you know, if our customers mm-hmm. choose to adopt ARM in, in EC2, then it might be interesting to yep. bring VMC over to support those instances. And then hot on the heels of that, um, at reInvent uh, 2019 again in Vegas, um, I talked about ESXi and A1 and showed ESXi running on Amazon's new M6G uh, cloud instances. Now, while A1 was an experiment that AWS did, it was a, a low-powered system, uh, uh, you know, good for some workloads and not CPU-intensive. Uh, M6G is positioned as being 20% cheaper than M5, while up to 40% better on top of that than M5. If you're familiar, familiar with AWS nomenclature, M5 is the uh, bread and butter of uh, EC2 instances. So it's built with the sort of latest VM processors, and it's not, it's not compute optimized. It's not RAM optimized or anything optimized. But it's a general purpose box. It's pretty expensive, too. It's about $100 a day, I believe, right? So it's pretty amazing when you had Andy Jassy on stage start talking about how you know, customers now don't have to think about what workloads could work on ARM. They can just throw anything at it and save money. So that was pretty interesting. Another place where you saw ESXi ARM pop up um, was, of course, VMworld 2019 again, but in San Francisco, when uh, uh, our CTO was on stage uh, with our, well, both of our CTOs were on stage, uh, Ray Farrell and Greg, and um, they uh, showed ESXi running on SmartNix, right, running on Mailbox and Broadcom devices. Um, so that's kind of a, the third uh, place where you saw ESXi ARM being demonstrated. 
Wow. Yeah, that makes sense, the cloud space. John Troyer, what do you think of all this? You're just watching this now. This is a transition that's happening in our industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you clearly see it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's early on, like we said, it's early on the cloud and server side. It's here. Uh, it's been coming for a while. In the chat, we were talking about, you know, the, the whole IoT side, which is a whole other thing. Um, you know, it, it's it's clearly here. It, it, uh, it's clearly people are going to be able to take advantage of it, architecture, you know, whatever your architectures are. A lot of us are beholden to, uh, you know, our, our, our software providers. But it's, it's great that it's an option now. Uh, and and uh, clearly CPU... I mean, this has been every 10 years we say this, right, that CPU is no longer the limiting factor in our, 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 our applications. We've got plenty of compute for whatever we want to do. It's, it's the rest of it. Um, hey, Andre, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious. How hard was it to, to port the kernel or to, to make an equivalent kernel on ARM? And, I mean, most of us here are kind of operator-level folks, but we, we, are, we are computer science adjacent, many of us. And so, like, I mean, we all heard the story about how x86 was card and you had to bring zero stuff, and it wasn't really designed for that. And, you know, over the years, and Intel added, uh, uh, you know, instructions. And, we, you know, we, people who've been following and, and kind of understand how the magic happens down there, kind of low-level stuff. I mean, was it hard? Uh, was, it, was it hard, and was it surprisingly hard or easy? Or, or you know, what was the experience like in, in pulling it all over the kernel functionality a, over to ARM? I, I think that's a great question. Um, so, first of all, it is the same code base. Right. So the same code base can be built today on ARM and for x86. Um, now, um, what is the impedance mismatch for between basically an, an operating system initially written for x86 and a 64-bit ARM chip? Not as much as you maybe expect, right? And part of the reason for that, I would say the general shape, right, um, is the same, right? And there's a, there's a good reason for that. You know, when ARM designed the 64-bit architecture, 64-bit ARM architecture, uh, they didn't design it in the vacuum. So not only did they consult with engineers from VMware, from Microsoft, I'm sure from other places, but they, they made sure that uh, when, when they made design decisions around how, say, uh, CPU virtualization would work or um, how um, a memory management unit would work, you know, all these things, you know, they, they're generally in the same, operating the same way, right? Now, of course, when you look like at page table used by a memory uh, um, management unit, uh, it's kind of it's the same sort of inverted tree layout. Now, the, the bits have different, are in different places and have different meanings, but that can be all abstracted in the source code. You know, conceptually, if we lived in an alternate reality where we had to port ESXi to say power eight or anything earlier than that, IBM power eight, that would be pretty challenging simply because a, a power eight chip does look very different from an x86 or a 64-bit ARM chip. But even, even in that space, in you know, power nine, you see this convergence, right, where ARM and x86 and power, um, they have basically the same functionality, right? I mean, they're, they're roughly in the same kind of performance and power ballpark, right? And I mean, you're not comparing mainframes to microcontrollers anymore. So, so that's kind of interesting, right? And, uh, I mean, this is all on purpose, right? Because uh, if you make it too difficult for operating system vendors to go and, and make this stuff work, well, they might not, right? And then, two, it'll be on this off, weird, beaten path. It's not going to be the same code that's exercised by everybody else. But um, you, you said something very insightful. You said that, you know, nobody really, you know, the CPUs, you know, the actual CPU itself doesn't matter. You have enough compute. But it's another, it's another interesting function there. Nobody ever takes a workload and says, hmm, I got, I'm going to write an application for an AMD Ryzen, 
nobody does that, right? Uh, I mean, you might choose to optimize an application with the features on your CPU. But what you have is, well, I have my list of requirements, and maybe I have a choice for an environment. Well, again, that environment today is Linux, right? So Linux is the common platform, right? And then Linux runs on ARM and x86 and some other things. So, yeah. But anyway, um, I think you're asking about difficulties, I, and Andre, we talk I about difficulties. Yeah. So, Andre, I suppose the caveat to that is if you're in kind of disconnected low power, right? Because then, then CPU may be coming up, you know, because more power, you can run the CPU at full speed. You're off power, you may, you may want to slow it down. But with that caveat, sorry, I, I cut, uh, please, uh, that sounds like oh, you're getting uh, to the juicy part. I, I would say, well, again, uh, from a technical perspective, I don't think there's any challenges, but uh, whenever you talk about porting software, uh, a lot of it is not particularly sexy work, right? Uh, it's mostly... Uh, it's mostly pruning the branches and kind of uh, sweeping stuff around, getting code to compile, right? And then you realize it depends on this library, and this library is, you know, you know, you got to clean up the build systems for different components. And then when we started, many things in the ecosystem weren't quite yet uh, perfectly like well tested or imported to ARM, and so we did a lot of this work ourselves, and so. Um, I would say uh, right now, for example, right, if VMware decided to go and you know, airport ESXi to, say, RISC-V or something, right, I mean, that will be um, a much uh, cheaper, uh, simpler proposition than, you know, it was originally deported to ARM, right? There's a lot of sort of background work um, that doesn't have anything to do with sort of like, well, i got to come up with a novel, you know, solution for a problem, how to make this specific functionality work. So. Technically, I think it's actually pretty fine. I mean, of course, the, 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 there are differences. Right? I'm, I'm not saying that an ARM system today is basically an x86 clone. Um, but they definitely, I mean, at the CPU level, definitely try to make sure it's not too difficult. And again, at the system level, um, you know, there's this whole ecosystem called the ARM server-ready ecosystem, and there are two specifications. The server-based uh, system architecture, that's a hardware spec, and the uh, server-based booting requirements, that's the firmware spec, basically say it has to look like an x86 server. It has to boot like EFI and ACPI like an x86 server because it can be weird. If it's too weird for OSVs, OS vendors, if it's too weird for ODMs, if it's too weird for operators or application developers, it's not going to be adopted. Now, you might have hear, heard hear a lot of server, server, server in there, right? That's where this dynamic started. Good news is it is coming to the edge, and we can talk about why that's interesting. All right, interesting. Um, all right, great question, John. Um, we have a couple other things to get to, so I want to move on with that. So I get, um, I think the point we made when we're talking about why VMware is here, uh, the cloud model, I think, is going to drive some of this. The Linux model is going to drive some of this. Uh, the microservices architecture where small CPUs, a large number of lots of uh, units would also drive this. But I actually see, you know, if, 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 if Amazon's offering it and we have VMC on AWS where you can just move your workload over, we want to capture new work workloads, it makes sense that, you know, that somebody put out a really good article on Kubernetes the other day uh, and talked about why you want to put it in a VM, right? Uh, even your microservices in a VM. And if you're running those markers, microservices and you have all the advantages of a VM uh, to run your Kubernetes microservices hosted apps there, then it would make sense that we put that whole stack on ARM because 
Amazon's offering up ARM platforms and customers are actually going to be there doing that as well. So I think that's this, my summation of why VMware cares about the space because because customers are starting to build workloads and running them on Linux and there so are, there's not – Really kind of sum it up, I would say the reason why VMware cares about ARM is specifically around new workloads, right? So Greenfield, right? I can tell you what we right. don't care about. Um, we don't really care about the, the ARM and the enterprise. I mean, frankly, that doesn't actually exist, right? And I'll tell you, it won't actually exist until Microsoft puts out, um, say, a server build of Windows out and people actually start adopting it in, in, in data centers. But there's no real reason to do that, right? That's not the battlefield, right. effectively, right? And right. enterprise today is basically legacy. Now, don't confuse enterprise and on-prem. Those are actually two different things, right? You can be deploying kind of modern uh, uh, applications, modern well, native structure. scale, right? right? Sometimes you have to be on-prem due to many other factors why you can be in cloud, right? But so we don't care about enterprise. We care about new workloads. So edge compute is, uh, I think, on the verge of an explosion, right? Um, and ARM is not going to be the only player in space. It, it isn't today, um, but but it will be. Now edge is actually kind of three different things I see. So there's the thing that you folks mentioned, IoT, right? ARM calls it the far edge, okay? So small devices, really low power, right? Then there's what ARM calls near edge. Um, so those far edge devices are factories, oil rigs, you know, they could be really doing kind of data collection, aggregation, uh, IoT gateways, if I may. Then there's the concept of near edge. Near edge are fairly boring service systems, although they may be in novel smaller footprints like Open19, these are systems sitting by base stations, telco towers. Uh, what are they doing? Well, they're either, running, they're either running parts of the telco stack, right, or they're there to be basically sold as a kind of geo-located um, cloud, right? Imagine you're broadcasting a game, and, of course, you want to stream everything in 8K. Well, guess what, right? You don't want to do the encoding in the cloud. You want to do the encoding as close to the stadium as possible. So you're going to go to, I don't know, some... Uh, provider like Verizon or Sprint or AT&T, and maybe they'll sell you some capacity where you go and run your encoders. And they'll be in a small podlet or a data center let uh, by a base station. Uh, so there's a company called Packet, for example, that uh, that's the, kind of their business model, right? So Packet's model is these little edgelets, uh, as I would call them. And then, of course, uh, there's this interesting new space with things like SmartNix, right? A SmartNix is really a, a microserver on a, on a PCI car. I mean, it's a NIC, right? But it's also smart. I mean, what does that mean, right? I mean, yeah, of course, you could, you know, if you put on your telco hat, right, you could be running some uh, network function virtualization things and on there, right? Okay, that's kind of interesting, maybe, right? Um, but uh, if you put on your like CSV hat, or maybe even your kind of your typical enterprise customer hat, hat um, you could be using this as an off-the-shelf building block um, to Im improve to service to disaggregate them, right? To offload some functionality from host CPUs uh, to these kind of accelerators. So this could be an accelerator to make vSphere go fast, right? Um, kind of much in the same way where, for example, Amazon has the Nitro architecture, right? That they offload networking storage virtualization, right? Why do they do that? Because they want to sell host CPU cycles to the customer, right? But all, all cost customers are the, uh, are the same, right? They all want to make good use of the, all, the, all the CPU they're paying for. They like all the features that, you know, uh, companies like VMware, Microsoft, cloud providers provide, but not at the expense, of course, of the underlying hardware. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so th that's kind of another battlefield right there. Is, I would say it's edge, right? Now, another 
thing that's clearly edge is edge uh, network function virtualization. Everybody has a Wi-Fi router at home, right? Of course. Or some kind of network firewall uh, or like a network switch. But there are these boxes you can go get or maybe your telco will send them to you. They look like a bit of infrastructure, but they will have 16 gigs of RAM in there. They'll have like eight cores. They'll have uh, NVMe or SAT in them. And they will actually use virtualizational containers to partition up the different telco workloads. So that's network function virtualization at the edge to build something called universal customer premise equipment. You know, customer premise equipment is because it's you know for the premises of the customer. So that's edge too. And you know, telco is not a big area. VMware, of course, uh, is playing and is it kind of you know wants to put more and more uh, effort into. I know that's a lot of info. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, but that's a, that's great. That's great answers and uh, takes us Green, into Greenfield, this. yeah. Sure. Yep, yeah, Greenfield apps, right? And uh, and that makes sense. A lot of places there, and it's it's an exploding 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 market. Um, next thing we want to cover is um, you know it's funny. Uh, I'll just take an aside here and go that every quarter we roll up our numbers and we have to report them up to our CMO and talk about you know growth of how many conversations and social and community and all that. And in this year, we were actually 12 or 15% down year over year. And I had to explain, you know, are we, do we have a problem? Our traffic is down. Why are we down? Down is never good in the corporate world. Uh, but what we looked at was last year, we, uh, Pat Gelsinger in Q4 was on stage in Barcelona, and he held up a Raspberry Pi. And he went, yes, you can run ESXi, even on this little guy. And that trended. We got like 4 million downloads of that video. We got tons of traffic. Social traffic was through the roof between that and we acquired Heptios, Kubernetes. So those two yeah. events happened and drove our traffic so high that this year our traffic was down by 12%, even though we're, we were trending up across year long trends because of that Raspberry Pi Pat Gelsinger thing. So I got to come to back to Raspberry Pi, ESXi. You know, we, we talked about it. We did some kind of prototype demos. Um, and I know that uh, we'll do a shout out. We're going to have a big launch March 10th. So go look for a sign up for our March 10th launch event. I can't talk about what we're announcing other than uh, maybe possibly vSphere and what we're going to do in 2020 around vSphere, maybe a, a new release that uh, you'll be in heaven if you, if you hear about it. Um, so uh, vSphere heaven, that's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it. Uh, so that, uh, go out and sign up for uh, vSphere Heaven launch that's uh, going to be happening. And then at the same time, um, ESXi Raspberry Pi 4, the 4 comes out, it's got 4 gig on it. What's, uh, what's the story with ever getting to put a ESXi, ESXi on a Raspberry for a home lab? So my first question is, do we have time to talk about like how that Pi 3 demo happened. I mean, it's a pretty cool story. We got, we got, we got 15 minutes left with the podcast, right. so you're good. I think you're gonna, yep. I think you're gonna love the story. That is actually the most unlikely demo that has ever happened, right? So it started at VMworld 2018 uh, in Las Vegas, uh, and um, we had that announcement on stage, of course, with uh, with Pat and Ray and the wind turbines, and uh, I was manning the uh, very kind of opaquely uh, named booth, octo booth that was around edge compute. It was actually the ARM booth, right? Effectively, it's the only thing we showed. Right. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And uh, so we're actually showing there a bunch of ARM platforms and you know, talking about you know, what we have there with ESXi and how awesome it is. And then all these people approach me and ask me, oh, Andre, like, uh, can I, can't, you know, maybe I can't get it, but uh, does it run on the Raspberry Pi 3? And I'm 
patiently standing there explaining to them why it technically cannot happen, right? It doesn't have enough RAM, you know, it's weird and, you know, it's actually a pretty weird platform, like even from the perspective of sort of your, you know, vertically integrated uh, ecosystem, of, uh, of the traditional vertically integrated ARM ecosystem. And so when I left that show, I was like, well, you know, <laughs> all these people who are really disappointed by me telling them no uh, about the Pi 3, maybe I should actually try and uh, prove myself wrong. This was really an exercise in basically proving that, you know, I, am, you know, I know what I'm talking about, and yes, it's impossible. But the short answer is yes, Pi 3 was actually impossible, but for a bunch of interesting contortions and hacks, uh, yeah, we got ESXi running on the Pi 3. Now, we were kind of approaching the, the dates for uh, the, the event in, in Barcelona, and uh, I kind of shopped around the ideas of, hey, so we have this, you know, ESXi running on the Pi 3. I think it could be pretty cool to show just because there's a lot of, uh, I had a lot of outreach around ESXi and the Pi 3. Uh, you know, it's like people were like, oh, gee, I don't know, Andre, you know, it's a little late, you know, okay. And then I heard that uh, Ed Gelsinger was going to uh, visit uh, one of the Massachusetts offices. All right? So I, I worked in the Boston office, and he was visiting for a fireside chat. Uh, the uh, Burlington, Massachusetts office, because he was really there for customer meeting. So, uh, and I, I, we had a, a colleague visiting us from Cork, Ireland. His name is Andreas Scher. He was actually doing a tape rig getting VSAN up and running on ARM. So I grabbed him and said, Andreas, you want to go see our other office in Burlington? He was like, well, uh, sure, Andre, why not? <laughs> so we took the Raspberry Pi 3 and we drove straight to uh, uh, Burlington. And, um, Basically, I was like, okay, I got to just grab three minutes of pad time. And uh, we did actually arrange this like the day before. I was talking to the, you know, the site directors of there, like, oh, can we, can we, can we do this? Grab and, a um, couple. Yep. Exactly, right. And so there was this fireside chat, and I was just sitting there kind of really patiently waiting for this thing to end. Um, and then uh, as I was kind of approached Pat, you know, there were some salespeople like, oh, no, no, sorry, no, no time, no time. We got to leave, we got to leave. Um, and so uh, one of the facilities folks uh, from, from Boston um, uh, that uh, was, was there uh, in, uh, in the Burlington office as well, he just kept waving at me. So just, just go, go, go. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. So, and I just started walking. And I, I, he, just, he told me, just go into the room where you did all the setup, right? And, and so I did. And this is the most amazing thing ever. Um, so the salespeople were leading Pat out of the out of the office. The guy just extends his hand, says, "Oh, Pat, this way, please." So Pat just uh, you know goes into the room, and uh, we do our three minute spiel. And he's like, "Well, I think this is really cool," um, and that's how the demo was, was on uh, basically on on stage. Uh, so uh, yeah, nice. uh, so yeah, okay. and uh, that was I'm a little flustered right now. So for whatever reason, just. The name uh, evaded me, but I'll, I'll give it to you in a sec because uh, this gentleman uh, sort of uh, really kind of, you know, helped it's you, amazing, right? Uh, right? Right, right. Exactly, <laughs> right? Um, I well, mean, would well, I that be was able to do something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Myself, I don't know. <laughs> Some of that stuff got out on blogs, and, uh, you know, we, and then there have been, so then the year after this, uh, you know, we, 
it was out people you 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 know pat mentioned it um a couple of us eager people like myself and william lamb uh got a hold of the version you know uh because i think you gave it to us to, to be nice right uh and then we kind of demoed it here or there but we never gave it out right but then it became this kind of thing that's there that nobody's ever going to be able to get right like because one gig of memory on okay. raspberry pi yeah, it's not very so, memory to do anything anyway, right? So it was a party yeah. trick. Well, okay, so okay, the, the, it's actually pretty cool, right? So the gentleman's name is Matt Holland. So thanks a lot, Matt. Uh, you're the best. And uh, I mean, if I could do something like that for somebody else, I think I would just love to repay the favor um, in that way. Um, now, the, what we actually had is pretty amazing because uh, we could run on a single one gig pi, uh, like a real VM, right? And another party trick, I ran a small Linux VM with a DOS emulator. Basic, and you could actually DNC into it and play Snake. Okay, so Pi 3 is cool, it's a gimmick, right? It's not really like a product or any way. No, but then the Pi 4 came around. And the Pi 4 came out with 4 gigs of RAM. And more importantly, the Pi 4 is much more standardized from a hardware perspective. Um, and this actually brings a, a, a basically the whole, new this, the whole Pi 4 effort uh, brings. Uh, I, I would say not, this is not going to be a story. This is an ARM ecosystem story. I think it opens up a new whole chapter where you're going to see massive standardization of um, ARM edge compute. So I can tell you right now with the Pi 4, we have a joint project in VMware and ARM to develop uh, firmware for the Raspberry Pi 4 that will give the same kind of uh, ARM server ready experience. Like this means that. Well, traditionally, on a Raspberry Pi, you only can run you know, an operating system that's made for the Raspberry Pi, right? Uh, you will be able to run any system that, on any operating system that complies with these server specs. Well, ESXi is one of these systems, right? So, and I think it would be kind of really fascinating because do you know how much the Raspberry Pi 4 costs? Yeah, it's like eighty dollars or something pretty cheap. Nah, right? it's 50, like fifty-five. It's fifty-five. Fifty-five now. Wow. Wow, that's for, crazy. For the four gig, thirty-five for the one gig, okay. fifty-five. Yeah, so fifty-five dollars actually gives you not a. It's a not a low-end system, right? It uses a Cortex A72 chip, uh, so A72 CPU in that. It's the same kind you can find in uh, A1 metal uh, AWS server. It's the same kind of chip, but highlighted in a bigger um, uh, Macadabin edge compute box used for that wind turbine demo we did. So it's actually like a, it's like a medium grade. It's not a server grade chip, but it's kind of a closely approaching that. Uh, right. DDR4 RAM, uh, USB 3, uh, and it has the onboard gigabit networking. I mean, I think it's a it's a pretty sweet package. Yeah, it is a very now, nice. Like we got a, them. We had them at VMworld. They're a very nice four core. You know, two point you know, six gigahertz, um, yeah, heavy duty. Yeah. Like you say, uh, gigabit ethernet on the, on the boards. Um, they were actually hard to get a hold of when we were at, we, they were sold out, oh. but I think now they've stopped manufacturing. So these things are sweet, oh, nice yeah. ducks, and dual head. If you want to reuse them as a little engineering workstation, you can do They have dual HDMI outs now as well. So sweet little yeah, board. Another great story. Uh, I remember William Lamb, like sending me a message on Slack Monday, Andre, did you get a Pi 4? I'm like, which Pi 4? And I guess I don't know what I was doing the weekend, but I wasn't paying any attention. I'm like, uh, William, you mean the like the, the April first joke? Or like, uh, no, 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 this is a real Pi Four. I'm like, oh, oh. And then I realized that my colleagues like, well, order these things. And I'm like, oh, well, well, I can't even go get the four gig one apparently because they're all like sold out. 
But then, right. uh, so in Boston, there's a store called the Micro Center, right? And uh, they ran some kind of uh, deal where if you show up in person on Friday at like 10 a.m. or something, you can go buy them, right? And actually, another colleague of mine sent this to me, um, but then, and I showed up on Friday, and there was a line of people out the door. <laughs> I'm like, are you guys all here for five, four? Like, yes. I'm like, okay, good. So we all ran into the store and got, in, and, and I left. And I went, when I went back to the office and I said, and I asked, yeah, how come you didn't get your five, four? It's like, well, I went on, on, on the website last night, and the deal was gone. I'm like, whoops, well, I didn't go on the website. I didn't know that the deal was supposed to be canceled, so I got my five, four. Anyway, um, I know People are, are probably don't want to listen to me talk about this like random anecdotal stuff. What they really like to hear is what's going on with ESXi and Pi4, right? So I think we all understand how valuable a swing could be, right? Uh, I can't really comment on any dates or any timeline, but uh, we definitely see value uh, for you know engaging with the community uh, on that kind of a level, um, and uh, if there is a swing, uh, which I can't really comment about. Uh, and I can't comment on what date it could come if there is a fling, but the Pi 4 is, you know, clearly uh, the kind of device that uh, if you want to make a fling happen, you got to make it happen in that kind of device. Why? Because anybody can buy it anywhere in the world, high volume, low cost, right? And then you can actually do a lot of pretty cool things in it. So it's not crippled in the, in the same sense that a lot of the, uh, like, smaller boards are. Um, and, you know, the work that we're doing with ARM around making uh, this Raspberry Pi 4 kind of a, Standard's first platform uh, that does really feed uh, feeds into that a lot, um, and this actually opens up uh, other interesting things, right? So we're working with, for example, NXP. Uh, NXP has this whole line of uh, uh, sit down chips, CPUs called Layerscape, and Layerscape is a kind of a traditional network-oriented chip that goes into routers and switches. And again, collaboration to bring standardized firmware to that, right? And there's systems again that are not as cheap as a Raspberry Pi 4, I mean, a bit more powerful, but in the $300, $500 range, that again, I think could be well-suited, you know, for a community evaluation, such as an ESXi ARM fling, which I can't really comment on about. Um, although it's a great idea. I mean, I think uh, it's an idea that's definitely ripe for its existence. Um, and, and so uh, I'll jump I, in I think, here. I'll jump in. I'll jump in here right yeah. now just for people who are listening because I know that, you know, you can't comment on any of that, Andre. So uh, I'll just, as a community guy, speculate that once the new release of vSphere comes out, right, and let's say that there was going to be a fling, not saying there is, but let's say there was going to be a fling, we'd probably have to wait for a new vSphere to come out because let's say the fling was going to be based on that new version of vSphere. Then I would assume that if the, we do have uh, – a March announcement where we're going to be talking about new vSphere, that if there was going to be a, v, a fling based on that new vSphere, it would be after the announcement of said new vSphere, that then maybe we would possibly see a fling come out that would allow you to run on a Raspberry Pi 4 with 4 gig of memory. Not that you're saying that, but I'm just saying as a community guy, speculating that that might be where we're headed. Very subtle, Eric. Very subtle. I, I'm, saying, subtle. I'm saying that, uh, you know, it's... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's You're not, not preposterous, right? It's it's like not completely, uh, but anyway, I'll tell you what. I mean, the, the work that we're doing uh, uh, with ARM, uh, with the community around uh, stretching the, these, quote-unquote, you know, server specs down to edge, uh, I think you can see a lot more other very interesting platforms happening. And yeah, the one platform right. I would love to see happen is like NVIDIA Tegra Xavier. Well, Tegra X2, Tegra X1. Because you know that device with the compute and the GPU, that would be so cool. 
you know how many people we have uh, asking for Tegras? You know, people doing robot stuff, uh, or even some edge compute gateways that are using Tegra chips. That that's another one, right? That that's a huge milestone. So, uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Ismail and I were talking about the, you know, the current Raspberry Pis are at what now? Four, Four gig. gig yeah. Andre, what happens when we get to like sixteen? And how many years before we get to 16? Like, it's like, uh, if we're at 4 gig now, and uh, Moore's Law is every two years, and we're still kind of going on that, maybe by two years from now, there'll be a Raspberry Pi 5 that's going to be 8 gig, and then two years uh, after that, so four years from now, we're at 16 gig. Now you've got, you know, and, and double the CPU performance. Now you've got really a, a $50 board that's going to be a real server. Right, like uh, pretty soon. Well, I mean, like conceptually, if you want systems, I mean, we have systems. To, I mean, ARM is very varied. Like, we have systems. ESXi today runs on systems as as low end as you know, four gigs of RAM, Cortex A53, and as high end as you know, 256 threads, you know, 512 gigs of RAM, and just like high end systems, right? So. If you really want a system with, say, 16 gigs of RAM today, right, you go do it. Now, I can tell you that what I'd love to see happen is to see a Raspberry Pi-like device in that price range with ECC RAM, right? Because if you want to run edge compute, like actually not as a toy somewhere, uh, you really want to have ECC. You know why? They can detect failure, no. right? Uh, it, because mm -hmm. you don't want a thing to be just randomly miscomputing something. I mean, maybe it will crash. That's good because at least you can detect crashes. But maybe it will just be churning out bad data, which is just not good anymore. Um, actually, I love the Pi 4 because with these kind of small board computer systems, you know, uh, one of the arguments, for example, against Pis being deployed, and by the way, Pis are being deployed by real businesses around the world, is that uh, you cannot get a Pi with a support contract. and I know I, I, I like I lost my speech for a few minutes, and, and then I kind of recovered and I asked, "What would you want somebody to do if they had a support contract for the? Do you expect somebody to, to, to show up with a soldering yeah. iron and like soldering solder on a fifty dollar device? Right. You know, go buy hey. three more, stock up on them. If it dies, throw it away. It, you know, replace it. Right? Uh, you get this. Uh, um, you know, it really is. Um, it's the word I'm looking right. for. It's." Uh, you know, it's easily replaceable, right? It's commodity, right? It's, uh, it's basically yeah. uh, it's like that commodity. serverless computer model where you just drop them in, drop a new one in, put in over provision fifty of them, and then if they go bad, just turn them off and, and keep going. Well, um, it's serverless, but we yeah. all know where it runs, right? Right, right, exactly. Andre, we're almost at the top of the hour. We're uh, at the top of the hour now, and uh, we're going to have to end it up. Uh, but uh, what I always ask the guests when we, we talk is, um, where can people follow along, uh, join? Do you guys have a blog? Uh, how do how do, is it the vSphere blog? How do we, how do they follow you, and how do they follow the topic as 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 you move forward? Wait. No, that's a, that's a great. So this podcast ran just a few weeks later. <laughs> uh, we actually working on getting like a, an actual block space, and it's going to be a top level block space under the block space at VMware sites. So yeah, block at like, top. Yeah, we're setting one up for you. Yeah, that's true. We are. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 space number one. Uh, space number two. I have a Twitter account uh, that is my unofficial soapbox. All things ARM and all things virtualization ARM, and then if there's anything you know VMware uh, vSphere related, is it going to be there, right? And um, uh, if I put something in the chat, you get to see it. 
No? Great. W- will they? Yep. Uh, I'll put something in, oh, yeah. in the chat. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, the chat is saved on the podcast, so anybody that's listening to this can go to uh, uh, vmw.re slash pod. And uh, and and do it, but yeah, not the Zoom chat. You'd actually have to be on the on the on the talk shoot chat. Well, I, I pasted it in the Zoom chat, but maybe you can paste that into the everybody chat as well. Um, another cool thing. So I just set up a, a web page specifically to talk about the Raspberry Pi 4 EFI work. That's that's the work that uh, VMware and ARM started, but actually community around and updates around that will be you know, on, on that side as well. Um, but the VMware blog will be the premier spot, of course, once we all finish yep. setting it up. Getting, um, getting so, ready. Yep, we'll announce the blog, and we'll definitely come back on the podcast, talk about it. We'll tweet it out as well. Uh, do you have a Twitter handle? I did. So I, I, I pasted that. Uh, pasted that. Uh, what, I keep pasting what is it at? Instead of ever- what, is it, what, what is their Twitter handle? We'll it, just do it for people uh, listening in their car. It's what ain't in size. It's what... Uh, what ain't inside? W H A T. Yeah, it. so it's W H A T A I N T I N S I D. What ain't inside? Intel ain't inside. I mean, that's that's what it is, right? Yeah, that's what's inside. Fun. That's one of those yeah, things. Very, um, uh, another cool right. area. This is kind of ARM, not necessarily VMware specific, but there is a Discord server, uh, which is called like the Developer Ecosystem. Uh, there's a channel, so it's linked off that RPI4 UFI dev um, uh, thing, but I I can provide a, a paste. Should be able to paste a link here somewhere. Okay, I'll paste it right now. Oops, there it is. I'll paste this uh, Discord invite thing. There's a bunch of channels there. Um, I have one for RPI4 UFI. Again, it's not for ESXi on the Raspberry Pi 4, but it's for that prerequisite to get ESXi on the Pi 4. And by the way, we've shown ESXi on the Pi 4. We've shown it uh, at the ARM TechCon event, which is ARM's customer event, the main one they run every year in the fall uh, as part of the infrastructure zone. VMware had a booth there. It was pretty cool. Uh, Also showed this at VMware Barcelona, where ARM had a booth on the expo, and we were flooded. Oh, man. So even given our location and all that, we had like 500 people in three days. All right, we got to end up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say thank you, and uh, we will be sending out the blog when it announces. Andrea uh, Workington, uh, thank you for doing all the work that you do and uh, making it possible. Very excited about it. Uh, thanks for uh, creating, uh, you know, the founding uh, the, 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 the ARM practice at VM, VMware. It's going to be a lot of fun. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, can't wait to get an update, and I'm sure we'll see you at VMworld as well. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. John Troyer, are you still around? I don't know if you are. Thank you again right. if you are. For, yep. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. It was great. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. being Super here at number five. Yeah, great, great topic. And then Tony Foster will do the very last uh, barbecue report. I do have uh, I have one tidbit of barbecue uh, that Amy, Amy Lewis did, uh, some barbecue. I saw her on Twitter, and I chatted with her on uh, what she made. I don't know if you got anything interesting. Did you use your new uh, barbecue yet? Uh, are you going to be out in the I, snow? I did, snowing? yes. What did you make? So um, I made it especially for Podcast 500. I did um, a smoked meatloaf, and it's absolutely phenomenal. 
Wow. So you make up the meatloaf mix, I assume. Do you cook the whole thing in the barbecue from start to finish, or do you cook it in the oven and take it in and smoke it? How, how does that work? So I, I mix it up like standard, only this time I actually used uh, a uh, stuffing mix instead of breadcrumbs or uh, crackers. Used a uh, stuffing okay. mix in there. Mixed it up, put it in a uh, tray with open sides, and put it in uh, and um, did it low and slow for, uh, what was it, 240 um, for about three hours, and it came out awesome. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Barbecue meatloaf. That sounds like you're cooking oh, a... That, smoke meatloaf. Smoke meatloaf. Sounds like you're cooking a rock band guy, right? Like yeah. uh, from the Rocky Horror <laughs> Show. <laughs> smoke barbecued meatloaf. Love it. Love it, Tony Foster. Awesome. That's uh, that's worthy of podcast number 500. Uh, uh, Amy Lewis did a barbecue where she you, she got convinced that it was a sunny, half sunny day somewhere she lives in, I think in the, back on the East Coast. And uh, she tweeted out and it was pouring rain, right? Like, and, and, you know, it started raining midway through barbecue and she kept going. Oh, no. And I think she did some fish and uh, asparagus. But uh, you know what? Uh, Tony Foster, you barbecue in the winter when it's snowing. Amy Lewis back on the East, she barbecues when it's going to be raining. There's never a bad time to get, get out there and make some yummy barbecue and enjoy it. The weather can't hold you back. Can't hold us back. All right, that's it for this show. Thanks a lot, everybody, for being here. Number 500, super excited to make it to 1,000. That would be about 10 more years. So that's what I would say. We've been going at it for 10 years. And as long as it's simple and easy to do and we bring community together, uh, we will be there. And, hey, we're YouTube streaming, so don't forget to subscribe. Hit the red subscribe button and, uh, and click the bell for notifications, and you will get notified when we live stream uh, every week. So in, uh, until next week, uh, have some good barbecue and have a good, great rest of your week. Talk to you again. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.